1: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books in Intellectual History, we have Dr. E. James West, author of Our Kind of Historian, the Work and Activism of Lerone Bennett Jr. Welcome to the show, Dr. West.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for taking some time out to talk about your important book, Our Kind of Historian, which is a a pivotal work in, I think, African-American intellectual history, as well as the history of the the Black press. First, we will discuss Dr. West's biography, his teaching and research interests, and then we'll go into a more in-depth analysis of his book, Our Kind of Historian. So tell us a little bit about uh, your teaching and research background.
0: Sure. So uh, I'm based in the UK. Um, I did my undergraduate and, and postgraduate degrees in the UK and uh, work at a, at a British university. Um, so that's kind of the the, the, the background to, to where I'm based. Um, in terms of the type of stuff that I teach, so I'm a lecturer in uh, modern American history. So um, my, most of my research focuses on the black press in the United States, uh, broadly defined. Um, and beyond that, you know, I, I teach on a, across a range of modern American history topics. Um, so in, in the UK, generally, um, you don't have that many Americanists in within a given program. So you're usually required to teach across, you know, a a a fair amount of of material. Um, So that'll involve like most American history from from revolution onwards. Um, But for me, it's kind of predominantly 20th century stuff.
1: So what what led you to study history? And I guess more particularly African American history, uh, given that you're based in the UK, I would imagine did you have much exposure exposure to courses in African-American history, say in undergrad?
0: Yeah, so um, America, uh, African-American history in the UK is very popular, like uh, British schools and also universities have worked out that um, they can effectively negotiate race by transplanting those discussions onto African American history and avoiding discussions of, of race within the context of Britain. Um, so most when I was doing my um, A-levels, which is uh, what you do when you're kind of 16, 17, 18 in the UK, um, there were courses there on the African American civil rights movement uh, in, a, in a kind of classical framing. So, you know, 54 to 68 kind of framing. And that's a very popular course at that level um, in the UK. Uh, there wasn't any discussion really of um, race within the context of, of British history or, or Britain and empire. At least when I was at school, I know it's changed a little bit since then. Um, so, you know, for, for a lot of British students um, at that level, their engagement with questions of, of race and, and power and inequity really come through the lens of African-American history and, and particularly the, the modern civil rights struggle. Um, so, yeah, that was really my my entry point into thinking about African-American history. Um, and then also African-American history is uh, quite popular, particularly courses on, on civil rights um, are quite popular at, at British universities as well. And, and again, that's a way to kind of uh, offset or or transplant discussions of race away from the British lens and then to to think about it in terms of the U S. So I think, uh, a lot of the way that British people think about race is, um, or or kind of civil rights particularly is, you know, that's something that happens somewhere else. Um, you know, a lot of British undergraduate students will be able to list you the names of, you know, prominent civil rights leaders in the U S but, uh, they probably wouldn't be able to name many, if any, uh, civil rights leaders or, or black leaders in Britain. Um, and that speaks to a real kind of gap in in the way that British universities teach uh, about these about these subjects. And, and to an extent, that's starting to change now, um, and there are a lot of uh, scholars working within the UK Academy now who are doing a very good job of trying to address that violence. So Kaneta Hammond-Perry, who's a uh, De Montfort University in Leicester um, is is one person who's who's taking a lead on that, but um, yeah, it kind of speaks to that broader broader issue. But that's really the way that that I, along with many people who who kind of had a similar educational experience to me, um, began to ex- uh, engage with African American history. So I, I did courses on undergraduate level that were, you know, civil rights courses. I did courses on kind of like slavery in the U.S., um, Jim Crow, that kind of thing. Um, and that was the, that was the entry point.
1: That's interesting that you say is popular in the UK because I know recently in a US context, um, advanced placement courses in African-American history are just now starting, you know, and they made, uh, you know, college board made this big announcement. Oh, we're going to have this pilot program and start an AB AP course in African-American history. And there's like, it seems like, especially now, there's a lot of resistance. There's always been resistance, obviously, teaching African-American history in the American context. So that's a, a, a interesting, you know, view of the popularity in the UK. So let's turn more uh, directly to this question of intellectual history. Is a question I like to ask everybody that I interview. And, you know, intellectual historians are always obviously kind of debating the definition of their field and how to define it and, and so forth. So how would you define intellectual history, but more directly African-American intellectual history?
0: Yeah, um, I'm going to probably caveat it with saying that I'm not really an intellectual historian. So uh, my, my ideas about this um, probably... Uh, less well formed than than other people you might have interviewed um but yeah for me beyond the kind of just broader history of ideas model um i'm really interested in the frame the kind of gramscian framing of the division between the kind of uh i guess the gramscian model is like the organic intellectual so intellectuals who kind of uh associate or affiliate themselves with um, kind of marginalised social classes versus a, a more traditional elitist view of, of, of the intellectual, which I guess is the kind of the, the capital I intellectual idea of the um, kind of cerebral figure who's thinking about these big ideas, but not necessarily rooting those ideas within um, or, or to a kind of investment in, in bettering um, the lives of, of marginalized communities or social groups Um, and that's the way that I kind of approach thinking about Lerone Bennett and and his position and um, I think that's something that and I'm sure it'll come up quite a few times uh, this the kind of the objectivity question and uh, yeah I know that the the AHA decided to wade in uh, on that or well maybe not organizationally but one individual Um, and I think for, a, you know, for a lot of African-American people, people who we would see as part of a, a kind of canon of African-American intellectual history, um, the idea of of intellectual history being a, a more abstract idea is, is it has always been quite facile because, you know, what is the purpose of thinking about ideas of, um, you know, intellectual, like, not just... The, thinking about broader ideas of intellectual history, and but also thinking about how we apply those ideas for pragmatic, real-world benefits, and you know, for African American historians and intellectuals, primarily the betterment of African American people, and thinking about racial justice and, and racial uplift. So, uh, yeah, I, within the kind of broader framing of African uh, of intellectual history, I think you know, African American intellectual history is a as a subcomponent of that. Um, is very important because it obviously uh, reminds us that this division between a kind of traditional elite intellectual and then the organic intellectual um, quite quickly breaks down when we kind of look at marginalized groups or marginalized people within American history. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my entry point into into intellectual history. And then obviously Bennett is uh, the person that I'm most interested in for this book.
1: Sure. It's I and and I would imagine you will have critics if you haven't already read, you know, reviews of your book who would probably say, well, is two questions they might raise is uh, Bennett a historian? Is he an intellectual? He's a he's you know you're using the Gramscian framework, so more like a public intellectual and or activist intellectual. Uh, and that's a big debate too, obviously in intellectual history. You know what? What does that mean then? Right? Is he a presentist? <laughs> We're not going to go there. But I thought it was just uh, put in there as we start to yeah, look at. that. I'm just gonna. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't even know why this.
0: Like, yeah, we can just allow that. But it, that, the, I that I'm not going to like rant about that guy's article, but. It just even, didn't even make sense because it's like one of the first things that undergraduates like break down is the kind of like fallacies and limits of the idea of historical objectivity. Um, so the fact that the you know one of the main guys in the AHA is, seems really hung up on this idea still. Um, it seems a little bit uh, bizarre, and then also it's only really a problem when like brown people or, or women do it or i i don't know i just i didn't really understand what his thing was but yeah we, we can we can leave that alone um lots of people have more eloquently taken that apart than i could
1: um <laughs> yeah i mean definitely looking at somebody like bennett is uh in his like i don't even want to say contempt or disdain for this notion of objectivity and the fact that you know he's saying hey you know i need to use what i have to to get freedom you know, the the work itself is a part of the project of Black freedom, you know, trying to document our history and our past and using it kind of as a tool or weapon to um, secure some freedom at the present. But let's talk sources. Um, Obviously, this is one of the first extended um, histories of the life and work of, of Aaron Bennett, And so I'm wondering about sources and your um, access to sources. Can we talk a little bit about the sources you came across and putting this book together and maybe some challenges? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, so the, the two most important resources um, in terms of papers for this project were two. So when I started the process, of this book um and the, and the like a previous book that also involved bennett quite heavily um those two archives were unprocessed and then they've kind of been getting processed as i've been writing and then so one of those paper collections is, is at Emory university um and that's a relatively small but quite rich collection of, of bennett's papers and then there's another much larger collection at chicago state university um so those are the two most important individual papers that I, I used. And um, I'll just quickly say, particularly the Chicago State papers, um, that was only really possible through a fellowship um, that I had with the Black Metropolis Research Consortium in Chicago, and um, particularly the generosity of archivists at Chicago State, in particular Aisha Haeckel, who Uh, I I believe now she's based in Charleston, and then um, Raquel Flores-Clemens, and they were really instrumental in helping me get access to those papers. Um, And then outside of that, um, a lot of papers that were connected to people at Johnson Publishing Company. Um so there's a lot of different editorial papers scattered around the place, um, across the country. So a lot of those are in Chicago. People like Irabel Thompson or Ben Burns, who were both influential editors early on in Johnson Publishing's history. Um in Atlanta, um at Emory, but also um Atlanta University Center and Morehouse. Um there's papers related to other Editors, people like Bob Johnson, Hoyt Fuller, um, the Schomburg Center, um, Library of Congress, a few other places like those are the the main places in terms of archival material. Um, so that was, you know, really important. Um, and then also, I didn't so I didn't meet Bennett during his life. Um, I didn't have a personal relationship with him. Um, and we can talk about you know how that impacted the way that I wrote this book and maybe some of the limitations of that um but but i I'm fortunate to have a good relationship with his eldest daughter joy um and joy's been you know really supportive and really generous with her time um in terms of letting me look at you know some material that she has and then also just answering questions and I've done a couple of um interviews uh with her as well and um yeah like that relationship's been really Really important, um, because obviously you know i'm coming at this history you know the the book's called our Kind of historian, um, but you know I'm a white British scholar, like I didn't really engage with Bennett much prior to this project, like he's not someone who I grew up with, you know i didn't really know what before the Mayflower was, you know when I was growing up. Um, so uh, that relationship was was super important for me because it was just it was really important for me to kind of have a clear sense of what I was trying to do with this book and also the limitations based on my positionality as a as you know as a white British scholar and then also what I could and couldn't do and the stories that I was and wasn't able to tell through this book. Um, and I think that relationship with Joy is really important for keeping that at the forefront of my mind as I was, you know, writing the book.
1: Right. Yeah. Before the Mayflower, we all know, you know, African-American growing up in the U.S., my parents, you know, I think you capture that really well, what that book uh meant to African-Americans and just you're you're expected to see that on everybody's shelf. You know, my parents had their copy, you know, this um, and we probably still have it somewhere uh, in the family you know, seeing that uh, copy of the book, that was the definitive, that was our history, you know, and just having this relationship with uh, not only that book, but Ebony magazine. And at some point I might, as we get to our, the end of our questions, uh, maybe if we could talk about what Ebony has meant and has anything replaced it at the present, you know, if we get a chance. So let's talk about Lerone Bennett Jr. and how he fits the definition of an intellectual and then we'll turn directly to your book more directly to your book
0: yeah so bennett um he's not someone who comes from a like the way that he becomes a public historian or a public intellectual is not a direct line um you know he's he's born in the south he's, he's born in the delta in in mississippi delta and Larksdale and early on in the book I I spend quite a lot of time about the geography and thinking about the geography of where he grew up and uh, that was really important for me first of all just to kind of get a fuller sense of you know what is the sea that Bennett is swimming in within the context of you know 1930s Jim Crow Mississippi Um, and the way that informs his early life Um, but also that experience growing up in Mississippi, um, really puts in place some of the core ideas that he has about the role of history and the function of history and its relevance and powerful black people, um, that he kind of realizes in a fuller sense through his, through his later professional career. Um, so yeah, his, his time. In, in Mississippi and in, growing up in Jackson in particular was was really formative for him um, intellectually. Um, even though you know he wasn't thinking at that time, you know how am I going to conceptually write about and think about history later on? You know, it was just very formative. Um, but then looking back, it was obviously a really important moment. Um, and then he goes from Jackson through the the, the school system, and then he decides that he wants to go to Morehouse, um, and, and he wants to become, you know, a Morehouse man. Uh, this, this quite gendered vision of, of, of black excellence um, that he sees embodied through some people, some of the men that he knows in Jackson, um, and then he, he goes to Morehouse, and, and Morehouse in, in Atlanta is, uh, you know, an incredibly important. Uh, period in his life, you know, he, he comes under the influence of, of Benjamin E. Mays who alongside, you know, John H. Johnson is one of the the most important male figures in his life. Um, and a really major influence over his thinking about activism and about, um, you know, writing and, and education. Uh, and then he he ends up he, he works for a short period for the Atlanta daily world um one of the few daily black newspapers in the country um and that's his you know he, he his training almost as a, as a professional black journalist um and then he and then he moves to chicago in the early 50s early to mid 1950s um, so he's he's coming of age at this really really interesting moment um, within the kind of broader arc of African-American history um, when you think about, you know, he's he's born in in 1928 and he grows up uh, within the context of the Depression in in Mississippi and then he enters Morehouse at a really critical moment in that institution's history during World War II um, where it's really struggling for students and and Benjamin Mays arrives as the, the Morehouse president and he really transforms the institution in quite a short period of time. Um, and that's obviously the period as well that, you know, like Martin Luther King's at Morehouse, uh, Bob Johnson is at Morehouse, like some of these other really um, influential figures that are coming through Morehouse at this particular moment in the in the mid-40s, into the late 40s, early 50s. Um, so it's a really generative moment for Bennett. Uh, puts him in contact yes. with, uh, sorry, uh, my, I accidentally turned my microphone off then. Uh, puts him in contact with, with you know, some of the people who are who a mainstay throughout the rest of his life.
1: No, I think a good point that chapter of the Morehouse Man and, and and what that means to um, you know, black masculinity and African American experience and um what the Morehouse Man looks like, right? In terms of the style of dress and comportment and, and, and why that was such a formative uh, moment in his uh life. But can you briefly lay out your argument concerning Uh, Lerone Bennett Jr. Because, again, he's been overlooked in the sense that, is that because of access to sources or is it that, you know, do we put him, we don't put him next to, or historians haven't placed him next to somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois as our historian. You're calling him our kind of historian and making, you know, a point, I think, of delineation between who he was Can you tell us a little bit about your overarching argument kind of distill it for, for our audience a little bit more?
0: Yeah, sure. So that, the, the title of the book, our kind of historian um, comes from a a quote from Ishmael Reed, uh, which was quite late in, in Bennett's life. He was getting a prize um, from, I think it was the American book awards um, in, it was about, I think it was about 2002 and he, he, Ishmael Reed has has this great you know, it's quite a short speech when he's presenting this award. It's a lifetime achievement award to Bennett. And he's talking about him as a trailblazer in the quest for a more accurate and inclusive interpretation of American history. And this description of Bennett as as our kind of historian, I think, is is great. And it it does a really good job of getting to the heart of, of what Bennett's appeal is. And I think for a lot of his readers and overwhelmingly we're talking about African-American readers. It's not just that Bennett is writing history in a way that's kind of interesting and and lively and entertaining. Um, It's also that he has a very clear vision of, of why he's writing the history that he's writing and, and what the function of that history is and who, who his audience is like who he's writing that history for. Um, and I think that's at the heart of this really strong relationship that he he develops with the broader African American community. Um, and yeah, you've already mentioned before the Mayflower, obviously, um, and some of his later work. You know, Forced into Glory, um, the Challenge of Blackness, those kind of texts. It, they just he he writes in a way that really connects with people, um, and that's I think at the heart of his. Um, his popularity. And, you know, people like John Hope Franklin and, and Du Bois and, and other black historians and intellectuals, like, you know, they're very well known, but there's not that kind of warmth or intimacy of the relationship, I think, in the same kind of way for a lot of people as, as there was with Bennett. Um, and I think that's really at the, the heart of his appeal. And, and it's that kind of specific connection, uh, which informs, you know, the title of the book, but then more broadly the way that I think about uh, Bennett's work and his relationship to the African-American community.
1: Yeah, I, I tend to, I was I was going to throw John Hope Franklin out there, but I, I you know, I see your larger point in, in terms of his access and his public, as a public historian, really before it becomes in vogue, you know, he's a public figure, public historian. He's speaking to the masses as opposed to writing textbooks for, you know, a college classroom you know, Bennett's classroom is, is the African-American, um, population masses. And there's the Gramscian framing, of course, obviously makes the most sense in looking at him as a public intellectual. So how, tell us a little bit more about Ebony, right? The the central role of Ebony in the lives of African-Americans is well known, obviously. But, um, how did Bennett come to edit, you know, Ebony magazine and, um, I want to get to the importance. I mean, I think we we know the obvious importance of Ebony Magazine, but it's declining importance. And if you're making this argument about the central role of Bennett, is 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 he replaceable? Has anybody stepped kind of into that role with the decline of print media? You know, or if if that's even possible, right? But so tell us a little bit about his journey into Ebony Magazine.
0: Yeah, sure. So Ebony, I mean, I'm sure many listeners are all familiar with Ebony already, but just for a quick recap, um, John H. Johnson is a uh, kind of a migrant from Arkansas. He moves to Chicago with his mother in the, in the thirties. Uh, he gets a job at Supreme life, uh, which is a, you know, one of the largest black insurance companies in the country. And he start he kind of edits the, the, the newsletter effectively. Um, and then he gets this idea of creating a digest for African-American readers. Um, so he starts the the Negro Digest, which is later renamed as, as Black World in, in a later edition or iteration. And that's very popular. And he, he very, very quickly becomes one of the most widely circulating uh, black publications, black periodicals in the US. Uh, so three years later, in 1945, he starts this much more ambitious publication which is basically he envisions it as a black counterpart to life magazine so it's this photo editorial publication that he calls ebony and it's a you know it's a huge success um politically or kind of ideologically people have issues with it because it's it's very much you know like um it's very consumerist and and johnson's um ideas about um you know the route to black liberation will will basically come through democratic capitalism, which, you know, obviously some people uh, disagree with. Um, But Ebony as a publication is enormously successful. And, you know, within a very short period of time, it's, it's by some distance, the, the most popular black periodical in the United States and indeed the world. Um, And he's able to really become the first black publisher to successfully attract like major white corporate advertising. And this just generates a massive revenue stream. Um, and he starts to plow this back into trying to attract some of the best and brightest young black journalists in the country to Chicago. Um, and one of those people is Bob Johnson, uh, Robert Johnson, who was then working at the Atlanta Daily World. And he comes and he starts working on jet and, and Bob Johnson eventually becomes the like base, uh, the managing editor of, of jet or the, or the executive editor of jet. And when Bob Johnson arrives, he speaks to John Johnson. He says, you know, there's another guy down in Atlanta that I've worked with, uh, and you should really take a look at him. You know, he's, he's got the stuff, uh, which was the Bennett. Uh, so on Bob Johnson's recommendation, John Johnson invited Bennett, uh, Bennett, you know, decided it was it was the right time to leave Atlanta a new challenge he comes to Chicago uh, initially he works for jet but then after about a year he moves to Ebony um, and then you know he in with throughout the 50s he's making his name as at Ebony you know he's a he's a well-respected journalist he gets some choice assignments but you know no one no one thinks of him as a historian like he's not writing historical pieces you know the thing that really changes is that Bennett persuades Johnson that he's the right man to take on a series that Ebony runs. So which is, which is kind of envisioned in the late fifties and then it, it runs in the early sixties, uh, which is a, a black history series, you know, the first major black history series that the magazine has done. And that, that's the basis that series is the direct basis for what becomes before the Mayflower. Um, and that's really that series and before the Mayflower is what transforms Bennett's role in a very, very short period of time. So Bennett goes from being, you know, a well-respected, uh, very capable journalist. Um, but not really someone who is, is seen uh, seen as a kind of like a, a public intellectual or public historian or anything like that very quickly. Uh, the enormous success of of the Ebony Black History series and then the enormous success of Before the Mayflower uh, catapult Bennett into this position as as being one of the nation's most visible uh, Black popular historians. Um, And that's really kind of the basis for his relationship with the magazine and then his relationship with the, you know, broader community moving forward.
1: I, you know, as you were talking, I started to think about, You know the the second part of that question is about who who steps into that space in terms of a a a print magazine or or maybe television media as a as a as an institution that Ebony was, and I just started thinking about uh, BET and how uh, it it becomes to an extent a laughing stock among you know African American comedians. And, you know, the boondocks, obviously that cartoon is constantly um, lampooning um, BET as when you think of black media conglomerates, we think of Ebony, we think of Jet, we think of, then we start to think of BET, but it doesn't have the same place or space in black life that Ebony does. And it even to an extent becomes, I don't want to say it becomes kind of a joke, but for Aaron Magruder it does right. Like it couldn't step into the space that Ebony was, and you know that that's just you know an interesting question for me. Do you think there's anyone who in black media at the present is is comparable to to uh, Lerone Bennett Jr. or and or institution that's comparable to Ebony?
0: Um, I don't think so, and. I, I, but I think a lot of it is, is a kind of specific context, a specific kind of confluence of different people. Um, you know, Johnson Publishing as an institution, I don't think it's an exaggeration to describe Johnson Publishing as one of the most important black institutions of the 20th century. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm talking primarily in terms of culture, but I think also economically, politically, um, it has a role. I mean, you know, for a period, Johnson Publishing is is the largest black company in, in the country, um, at its peak. Um, and uh, I don't I think I mean, there's always been people who are critical of Ebony, like I'm very, very critical of Ebony, in many ways. Um, and the thing that I find interesting about it as a magazine, is that I kind of everyone's, I, I, I feel like everyone's point of view is, is kind of valid on it. Because if you think, oh, it's like quite a vapid consumerist, piecemeal like you know it, it's just full of like fluff pieces on celebrities yes that is true but also it publishes some really un- insightful pieces important pieces um you know some of it's key if you look at some of its key special issues like it's 1969 issue on the black revolution that's like a you look at the list of people who are contributing to that um issue and you know it's like it's not a list of people that you might traditionally associate with the uh, Ebony magazine, you're looking at people like Huey Newton and uh, Don Lee, or subsequently Haki Booty, and you know you're looking at like quite radical figures. Um, and I think that it, it was almost a kind of chameleonic publication in the way that it has this diversity of, of positions and perspectives. And I think Johnson, as an individual, um, John Johnson, as an individual, there's lots of things you can criticise him for, but I think um, from a business perspective, he makes a really interesting decision to have like a very diverse slate of of people writing for Ebony um, and writing for some of his other magazines. And I think that is um, admirable. Um, and I think there's certainly other, uh, lots of other things that we can criticize Johnson for in terms of the way that he organizes and runs his business. But I think the, willingness to have a diversity of, of of black perspectives within the publication is is really uh important and i think that's probably what separates it from more recent black media um that kind of diversity of perspectives i would say um so that's one part of it and then also just based purely on numbers like if you look at market saturation um so ebony at its peak if you look at like if you include pass on readership pretty close to about one in every two adult African-Americans were reading like at least some portion of the magazine every month. And that kind of level of, of engagement of market saturation, like it's, you're not going to get that again, um, on a sustained level. Like the only thing that I can really think of that is comparable, but it's in a much more intensive moment is the percentage of African-Americans who watch, roots the original television miniseries and the you know the the data that we have on that suggests anywhere upwards of 75 percent of african americans watched roots um, or watched at least one part of the original eight part miniseries but that's you know that's over like a period of weeks or months right whereas ebony has an enormous sustained readership really from you know almost from when it starts the readership's high and the readership stays high certainly into the 90s and then it starts to drop off quite a lot but you know it's to have that level of sustained engagement and just in terms of a pure numbers basis of like the number of people who have it in their home and they might not agree with it but it's very much like it's the coffee table magazine everyone has it in their home i I just i'm really struggling to think like what would Today would be comparable to that.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It's it's you know in the change in new media, there's so many forms of media now. You know, there's you know, Black Twitter <laughs> is a country, right? I like to say it's just like the so many different forms of media competing, you know, for the attention of you know the Black community in, in social media, television media. Uh, Yeah, I think that's a a great point about uh, longevity over over decades and its reach. Because I definitely, I could definitely tell you, you know, Ebony Magazine was always there uh, on the table. Uh, My mom was always carrying a copy of Ebony Magazine, you know, to and from work. So uh, point well taken. So you talk also about um, earlier in the book, um, to quote, um, black women played a dominant role in shaping you know, Bennett's early life. Um, how so and why, um, if you have any particular example of the women who shaped him in his uh, earlier life?
0: Yeah, sure. So I think it's, well, first of all, I'll just, I'll, I'll separate between Bennett's relation, like kind of personal relationships with the black women in his life. And then the role of black women in the way that he writes about history because i think that's a little bit different and i'm i do have criticisms in the book about in some ways the ways the, the way that he thinks and writes about black history is quite gendered um but in terms of like more personally uh he he's you know he's raised by his mother and grandmother effectively his, his parents you know separate when when he's very young and he moves with his mother alma to jackson and she raises him and also Lucy Reed who's his grandmother uh she has an enormous influence um in his in his early life he, he later describes her as you know the the greatest person he's ever met you know he he held he held, held her in that kind of esteem so they had a very important influence and in, not just in terms of him but also the way that they enabled him and provided him with opportunities to engage with particularly reading which was a you know huge uh passion from a very early age for bennett um so they actively facilitated that you know education was was a massive priority for them um i have this short story in, in the book about um when he's very young uh bennett comes back from school and he's been giving a report card where i think he's failing uh, it might be comprehension or it might be something else so then alma basically marches down to the school And bearing in mind, this is within the context of, you know, Jim Crow, Mississippi, she's a working class, single black woman, taking it down to the school and just being like, you don't know what you're talking about. You guys are idiots. Like, my son is, my son is not like failing this. And then she pulls him out of that school and and puts him in another school. And those relationships are super important um, in terms of establishing, you know, kind of core values for him, um, but also providing him with opportunities and and what they valued for him growing up so that's that's one kind of aspect of this and then uh some of his early teachers particularly a teacher called manning uh who who was a um the person who really kind of gets him engaging with history for the first time you know he talks a lot later in his life about the importance of of miss manning and her role in um getting him to think about history like the way that he writes about history later on which is very kind of engaging and accessible and lively like a lot of that comes from those early experiences with history with with miss manning in a in the jackson school system um so those are just kind of two two examples um and then later on in his life uh you know his his wife gloria uh plays a really important role albeit a very you know publicly underappreciated role in his career um, so the couple have four children within a very, quite short period of time and it's not just that gloria who was a very talented journalist in in her own right she she I and mean, actually met at johnson publishing um she kind of largely gives up her journalism career um to look look after and care for the children and that provides bennett with the space to to you know to become this this public figure uh but also, she plays a very important role in like helping him think through his work. she kind of sometimes edits his work um and you know that 's a very familiar story uh in terms of gendered labor and the underappreciated role of of the of the women or of all partners of of people who we see as intellectuals um so that 's not by you know that 's by no means something that 's exclusive to bennett um but yeah it 's worth obviously. Flagging the Gloria's role in in w- what he would would later become in terms of his public prominence.
1: And you mentioned, you know, his daughter in preserving the history it, with the papers that she has and documents, you know, down down to the present the, that you mentioned earlier in the in the show, how she played a major role in you getting at least your you know research out there and supporting. Really preserving her father's legacy, I think, is you know very interesting too.
0: Yeah, cool. I think for Joy as well. Like Joy was a journalist, so she kind of, I think she understood that aspect of her father's professional career like very well. And they actually, I believe, they worked together for a short time at Johnson Publishing. Um, you know, towards very you know towards the the end of the end of his life or his career there um yeah and, and joy is someone who's very uh i think she's very in she's very invested in maintaining or preserving like her father's work but not in a kind of gatekeeping way at least that's not my experience so i think it's more just she you know because there's been there's been stuff that that i've like come across that doesn't paint Bennett in a, in a favorable light by any means. And um, she's, you know, she's never really suggested like the way that I should write stuff. You know, she's been very engaged, but then in terms of the actual process of me writing stuff, she, she generally doesn't really like care about that too much because she's kind of like, she understands the process of, of writing, you know, she, she comes from that journalistic background. Um, So she, yeah, she's, she's been supportive but also not trying to, you know, guide or steer material which has been, you know, really useful.
1: Sure. So tell us more about Bennett's role in the in the civil rights movement, civil rights era, including, you know, his writings at that time. What, you know, how does he shape civil rights movement in what ways, you know, through his writings and so forth?
0: Yeah, so I think there's there's probably two quotes um, that are kind of at the forefront of my mind thinking about that question. And, and the first is uh, Jesse Jackson. So Jesse Jackson described Bennett as the um, the most read voice of the freedom struggle. And that's a direct quote. And we can litigate you know, whether that's actually true or not, but it gives a sense of like his reach, particularly during the 60s and into the 70s. And then also the other aspect of this is someone like John Henry Clarke, who writes this really interesting profile of Bennett, which appears in Freedom Ways in, uh, I think, early 1965. And he describes Bennett as one of the most prominent figures, as this like new wave of um, black scholars uh, who are effectively activist intellectuals, who are, who are people who are not just writing about the movement, but who are on the movement front lines in, in some ways who are active participators in as well as astute interpretators of uh, that's a quote from clark um, so those two kind of ideas really framed a lot of the way that i thought about his role um, and i think the 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 way that i try and map it out in the book is you you see this this transition in bennett's writing and you see in a very real way how his engagement with activism, his direct connection to both his participation in the civil rights movement, and then also his relationship to activists, prominent activists within the movement, how these shape his writing in really interesting ways. So you go from the early 60s, um, where, you know, he writes before the Mayflower, and he writes it in a very kind of engaging and accessible way. Um, But it's still it's not really a kind of theoretical text or he's not really thinking deeply about the relationship between black history and black activism. Uh, but then by the end of the sixties into the early seventies, he's writing these really interesting, quite theoretical conceptual collections. So the mo- the one that I would flag for, for people listening is the challenge of blackness, which came out in 1972 and which is a collection of speeches and addresses and, and essays and that the you know the difference between the content of before the mayflower which uh i believe first comes out in 1962 and then the challenge of blackness which comes out a decade later it really showcases how bennett's position changes and how the way that he thinks about black history and black activism shifts during this period um and how that's informed by his relationship with you know other people at Johnson Publishing Company, other people within the movement, people like James Baldwin and Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Torre. Um So, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting moment in his life. And again, you know, I think for Bennett, thinking about him more broadly, it's useful because that's a transition or an evolution that a lot of people undergo during this process. So all this period. So this, you know, this is by no means Bennett alone. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about him as a character, like the, the questions and the struggles that he has and the way that he thinks about black history and black activism for a lot of people they're you know, going through the same type of thing. And he is very good at vocalizing those type of questions and issues for people. And then, you know, seeing that transition, um, I think is, is really interesting.
1: Now, definitely, as you talk about the transition, as we sort of come to our last question about his views on reparations, tell us a little bit about his views on reparations.
0: Yeah, so this is one of the, um, and just for context, so for listeners, I, I wrote an earlier book called Ebony Magazine and Lerone Bennett Jr., which was focused more specifically on his role at Ebony. And then I, when I kind of wanted to do a, a more specific biography project, which was larger and and one of the big reasons was I wanted to talk about some of these other really interesting aspects of Bennett's life that I didn't get the chance to talk about in terms of his relationship with Ebony and the reparations debate was one of those. So Bennett, um, he has this kind of really interesting moment towards the end of his professional career at least uh because he his role at ebony changes in the late 80s and he starts to write a lot less um and it seems like he's kind of tapering off a bit but then you get this one-two punch around the turn of the 21st century so you see the publication of forced into glory which is his you know highly controversial uh magnum opus if you like uh of Abraham Lincoln as a white supremacist, which um, you know, is one of the books he's he's probably most uh well known for now. And then he plays this kind of influential role locally in Chicago um in the movement for reparations. And Bennett so Bennett's role so he is not someone who is leading the revived demand for reparations, which come around the turn of the 21st century. You know, he's not really connected to organizations like Uncobra. He's not someone like Randall Robinson, who's, you know, at the front line of that. Um, but what I wanted to show in this book is, is some people are quite dismissive of Bennett. They lump him in with like black public intellectuals or public figures who basically kind of jump on the reparations bandwagon um but what i wanted to show was that actually these ideas were something that bennett had been thinking about for decades and you can actually trace that lineage back to you know the 1960s in chicago and the way that he's writing about uh, the idea of reparations then Uh, so that was you know a really important way for me to kind of finish off the book if you like because i wanted to show that there was this revival of of interest in reparations and bennett played a kind of interesting role in chicago you know he has this really impassioned speech at a um public hearing where the chicago council is debating whether to pass a resolution on reparations and and bennett's speech plays a really big role in um seeing the passage of, of of that resolution and that's i think the one of the first it might be the first in a in a major u.s city where a, a, where a city council has, has passed like a formal resolution on on the question of reparations um, for slavery. Um, so yeah, like in that sense, he hasn't he has a kind of quite important role in Chicago. Um, but then I really wanted to again, kind of coming back to the, one of the, the overall themes of the book, I wanted to show how this was, you know, the idea of reparations wasn't just something that Bennett picked up in two thousand. Uh, and ran with within this context of a bribe, revived interest in reparations. Um, you know, I wanted to connect it back to, first of all, the way that he would had been thinking about reparations throughout his career, um, but then also link it back to that broader debate about reparations, which goes back into the 19th century, um, you know, and like people, you know, Cali House and, and those kind of earlier activists. Uh, so it was really part of... That, you know, I, I thought it was a nice way to kind of finish out the book because it, it comes back to those main ideas of where Bennett fits within this broader trajectory of African-American history and, and, and activism, um, both individually in the way that he writes and he thinks, um, but also connecting him to that, that longer tradition and, and continuing tradition.
1: Sure. That's intellectual history, Professor. <laughs> Looking at these uh, ideas over time. And how they developed. And um, so as we end today, tell us a little bit about what's next for you. I know you have two books that just came out. Man, a uh, very productive uh, scholar. What What's next for you? Uh, yeah, so, um,
0: yeah, I just had, so this biography came out and then I had a book that came out with Illinois earlier this year, which is, uh, it's called A House for the Struggle. And it's about the black press and the built environment in Chicago. Um, and then what I'm working on at the moment. So <clears throat> I'm writing, uh, it's a kind of a survey history of the modern black press for Edinburgh University Press. So I'm writing that at the moment. Um, and then also I'm involved in the black press research collective with uh, Professor Kim Gallen, uh, who was at Purdue but recently has now moved to Brown. And uh, yeah, we've got some really exciting stuff planned uh, for that. So hopefully there'll be more coming out over the next couple of months about what exactly we're, we're going to be able to do with the Black Press Research Collective moving forward, um, particularly with an eye on uh, 2027, which is the, the bicentennial of the, the Black Press in the US. So we've we've got some exciting stuff uh, lined up for then. So yeah, keep uh, keep tuned, I guess, for that.
1: Yeah, sure. It sounds like you're definitely involved in many different projects. And we look forward to reading uh, your next book and looking at your uh, other uh, research. And thank you again for uh, participating in this interview for the New Books Network. Thanks for having me.